I'd ask you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me this morning uh, back to the epistle to the Hebrews. We come in this course of expository sermons to chapter 10 and three verses, verses 32 to 34. Our text is Hebrews 10, verses 32, 33, and 34. But call the remembrance the former days, <clears throat> in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. For the believer, the world is something akin to a wind tunnel. The believer spends their whole entire existence in this world with face, with their face against the wind. And the winds of this world are all blowing toward hell. And the believer walks against the wind, leaning themselves into the wind every step throughout their entire journey. The believer faces many, many challenges and, and difficulties. And the Lord said that it would be so. And the Bible assures us that it will always uh, be so. Here in this portion of, of Hebrews, we're hearing this call to persevere in faith, for the one in a state of grace to persevere in faith. And yet that call faces many threats, and it faces uh, many blockades and obstacles in the path. And among the many blockades that it faces is included trials, afflictions, sorrows and setbacks and suffering. These are something that poses a threat at times to the persevering faith of God's people. And yet the Lord has told us we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom. And so trials sift the Lord's people. Trials purify the Lord's people, but ultimately in the hand of God, trials promote the perseverance of God's people. You remember the language that we saw when we were working our way through the book of Romans in chapter 5, verse 3, when he says, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Patience is closely related to this idea of perseverance. The Lord uses these trials to promote the perseverance of his people. And so here we find ourselves in Hebrews, God calling us to persevering faith. But we also find that he supplies all of the encouragements that we could ever need. He not only calls us to it, but he backs that call with all sorts of incentive and motivation and encouragement to the end of, of perseverance. We've, we've noticed that in the passage, the verses preceding this, verse 22 and following, he gives us the aid of exhortations, a series of exhortations to ourselves and in our responsibilities to our brethren. All of this is a help to perseverance. We saw last Lord's Day in the passage immediately preceding this one that he also supplies warnings, solemn warnings, heavy even somber warnings to us as an aid to help us. So that on one hand, he's exhorting us in order to spur us on. On the other hand, he's warning us in order to hem us in. Both blow in the same direction. Both provide the same blessings. But he doesn't stop there. And so as we come uh, this morning to verses 32 to 34, we see that he gives us further help in this call to persevere in faith. He calls us to draw on both our past and the future in order to fortify us in the present. 
He calls us to draw upon the past and the prospects of the future in order to fortify us in the present. And here we have the title of our sermon is Trophies in Trials, the way in which the Lord forges for himself trophies in trials. This shouldn't surprise us, really, should it? Because Christ, our Lord, bore a cross before a crown. And so it will forever be with his own people, all who are united to him. The cross must precede the crown. We're going to note three things as we look at these three verses. First of all, we begin with remembering the past in verse 32. So first of all, remembering the past, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Here we see that we are to draw fresh courage, if you will, for the present, fresh courage for the present by calling to mind God's faithfulness in the past. He says, but call to remembrance the former days. Remember what came before. Remember the earlier time in your earthly pilgrimage when you ventured out in faith and hung everything upon the Lord Jesus Christ, when you suffered uh, significant losses and went through many battles and a great deal of suffering. Remember these things, how the Lord supernaturally sustained you, how the Lord caused the seas to be parted and brought you across through the, these afflictions on dry ground, as it were, how the Lord brought you to what seemed an impenetrable fortress or a wall that could not be scaled or dug under, that could not be broken down, and how the Lord himself delivered you and brought you through and sustained and kept you by his grace. He's saying, draw fresh courage for the present hour by calling to mind God's faithfulness in the past. He says, in which after ye were illuminated, it can be translated enlightened, right? Both of these things, illuminated or enlightened. He says, remember, go all the way back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning of the beginning in terms of your spiritual experience, the, the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who comes to strive with the souls of men. Remember how the Spirit in his ministry began to turn the lights on inside your dark soul and mind, sovereignly and irresistibly, enabling you to see what you couldn't see before, enabling you to see your own depravity, your own rebellion, your sinfulness, enabling you to see your utter inability to do anything about it, the fact that you were stuck, that left to yourself, you were doomed, that indeed the Spirit came to you showing you that you were lost, left to yourself. That the, that the Spirit came and convicted of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come. That he showed the holiness and inflexibility of the righteous law of God and the way in which you had broken that and trampled it underfoot. He showed you the spirituality of that law, how it penetrates into the deepest crevices of the way you think and the motivations that prompt you and your attitudes, as well as your words and actions and everything else. You were illuminated. The Spirit was at work, and he came and did not stop there. But he began to show you the things of Christ, so that perhaps even having heard the Bible or known the Bible and known the name of Jesus Christ and perhaps have even have heard the gospel before, but never seen it, never understood it, never enabled to lay hold of it. The Spirit came and illuminated your mind. And all of a sudden, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was to you but a name, a historic figure with a collection of assorted facts. Now he's revealed to you as the Savior, as the Redeemer, as the only one who is able to save your wretched soul, to cleanse you and wash you, to redeem you, to pay the penalty and punishment for all of your law-breaking and transgressions, to clothe you with the, with the garments of his own impeccable righteousness, to give you access to God and to bring you into fellowship with God, to pardon all of your sins and to enable you by God's grace to be cleansed completely and fully. The Spirit came and he illuminated you. 
He enabled you to see. He began to bring light where there was darkness. He says, remember this. Call it to mind. In the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ but called a remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated. After that, what came? What came was enduring a great fight of afflictions that at the beginning, somewhere early on, perhaps even immediately after having been brought to see yourself and see the Savior savingly, you faced hot assaults. And all of a sudden, where previously you knew some measure of peace, peace in your circumstances, in your life, and, and so on, peace internally, you know, you were fine with how things were. All of a sudden, it's as if the floodgates have opened. And there's hot assaults. The devil is coming with, us, with attacks and, and all sorts of forms and shapes and sizes. Filling up the sky with his fiery darts which are falling upon you. You had the assaults that came from other people who took issue with you. Who saw some of the things that were changing in you and began uh, to, to be at odds with you. Right? You had attacks from the devil. You had attacks from the world. You had attacks from your own indwelling sin which was raging within your own bosom. And yet he can say in the midst of all that, ye endured. You persevered. You endured a great fight of afflictions. You didn't renounce all that you had come to. You didn't turn your back. You didn't pitch in the towel and walk back into the world to stay there forever. But by the grace of God alone, you endured. You continued to take one step at a time. You continued to set your face against the wind, and toward the Lord. And so he says, call this to remembrance. Remember these passings. This is an aid to the true Christian in the call to persevere in faith. Call to remembrance. Now, mind you, this call to remembrance is not, not just, not barely or merely a recollection because you know what? You don't need to be reminded of that. Everybody remembers the hard times, the difficulties, the trials, the afflictions that have come, even in their early Christian experience. That's not something in and of itself that requires much concerted effort. It's not just a bare intellectual recollection of these things. The fact is that too many stop there. Many stop at the remembrance of of suffering. They remember past seasons. They remember past circumstances. They remember the sufferings, right? The losses that were endured, the afflictions that were sustained, the battles that were fought. And they can recall that easily. In fact, they'll rattle it off to you. I remember when this happened and that happened and I lost this and I suffered this and I did this other thing and so on and so forth. But you know what, my friend, if that's all you've got, it will weaken faith, not strengthen it. If all you're recalling is the negativity of, of difficulties that have been sustained in the past, and that comes back to mind, well, here I am again, and look at what I've endured in the past, and that's all, and that's all the distance you go, that has an inclination toward weakening, not strengthening faith. No, when he's saying call to remembrance, he's, he's saying so call to mind that you are remembering the package that you did endure, that you're remembering the support, that you're remembering the discoveries that God gave you of himself, of the way in which the Bible opened to you like it hadn't opened to you in previous ways, the way in which promises were applied with such specificity and such savor that it made your heart ring. Remember, 
the presence of the Holy Spirit. Remember how on so many occasions you've, you've, you've hit the wall, you had hit the wall, you thought. And you thought, well, there's, there's no way around this one. There's no way over this one, and so on. And you think all is shut in, and you're crying out to the Lord. And he brought you deliverance in unexpected, unanticipated, unimaginable ways sometimes. The Lord opened his own path, and he brought deliverance. The fact that some of you here are here this morning is evidence of it. How in the world did you get here? How is it that you are still here? How is it that you find your backside in the pew under the ministry of the word of God? It is because the Lord, by his divine grace, it is the Lord because of the greatness of his faithfulness. It is the Lord because his goodness and mercy has in fact pursued you every day of your life. It is because the Lord in the riches and infinite nature of his mercies that you are here under the word this morning. All praise, honor, and glory be to the great God of glory. When he says call to remembrance, he's saying you remember who God is. You remember what God has done. You bow down before his throne and continue to give him fresh praise for all that he is, all that he's done for you. Remember the cause for which you suffered in those occasions when your afflictions were the price tag of allegiance to Jesus Christ. When you did against all the pressures in you and outside of you, the will of God, and you held fast. Remember that. Remember what that cause was. Remember the honor of it. Remember the, the honor that God attributes to allegiance to himself. Remember, as I said, the presence of God with you in the midst of all of those things and all of the blessings that he brought to you and how you could say to yourself, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth the cost. He's worth it. His cause is worth it all. I'd give all, withhold nothing in order to honor him. And despite hell and all of its fury, and despite all of the, the harassment that takes place in this world, remember the cause. Remember Christ himself. He says, call to remembrance the former days from the beginning when you were illuminated, subsequently to all the battles that were fought, the conflicts that took place there. Why? Why do we remember these things? Because they are intended by God. Their purpose is to enable you to press on. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jehovah is Jehovah, and he changes not. He does not change. Your circumstances change. The details change. The perplexity changes. Your responses change. There's a whole lot of things that change. He doesn't change. His grace doesn't change. The sufficiency of Christ does not change. And so he's saying, call to remembrance. Remember the past in order to gather fresh courage in the present. To press on with persevering faith. Are you being antagonized right now? Are you being antagonized by the world, assaulted by the devil, tormented at times by your own heart, attacked by other people right here and now in the world? Is that the case? Are you facing afflictions and trials of different shapes and sizes and all the forms that they come? Is that true? I mean it when I'm asking the question. Answer it. Answer the question in your own hearts and in your own minds. Are you facing these things? The answer, if you're a Christian, must be yes, in one degree or another and in one way or another. The answer is always yes. We're always in the wind tunnel. We're always, we always have our face against the wind. The Lord said so, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus 
shall suffer persecution in one degree or another. And so first of all, we have to be remembering the past. But then secondly, enduring afflictions. He speaks in verse 32 about that ye endured a great, flight, uh, great fight of afflictions, but then he goes on to the specifics in verse 33, and he gives us the specific types of afflictions that they endured. He says, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. In essence, he's saying, if you will, as you did then, so you must do now. Right? He's, he's speaking about the details of, these, of what it means to endure affliction with the aim that as you have done, so by God's grace, you, you must do. He speaks of great fight of afflictions. This is conflict, right? This isn't a walk in the park. This isn't easy peasy. This isn't, a, you know, like eating a piece of apple pie. These aren't things like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that wasn't, you know, my favorite thing to do or whatever else. He's speaking about all-out war, combat, conflict, a fight of afflictions. That's what he's speaking about. And he says there were two buckets, two categories. There were those that you faced yourself directly, and there were those that you faced in relationship to others, indirectly, if you will. He says both of these are a part of the lot of what it means to be a Christian, enduring afflictions. And so he says, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions. Reproaches. Think of the language of First Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Reproaches. Right? To be made a gazing stock is to be a spectacle. You know, it's for, for, for people to look on you in amazement, like what a you know, nutcase this person is, whatever else, demeaning. Reproaches are malicious accusations that are brought against you. Derision, slander. As it was with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was with him, remember they said that our Lord the Lord of glory, the one who is full of grace and truth, no guile found in his mouth, the one who is the God-man, who is impeccable in his person. How did they reproach him? They said he had a demon. The Lord of glory, accused of having a demon. They accused him of being a drunkard, a wine-bibber, and a glutton, one who no restraint on his appetites, and so on and so forth. They accused him, the living God, as a blasphemer in his trial, and much more. And as it was with our Lord, so he said it must be and will be with his people. His people will suffer reproaches. And this is something particularly trying, isn't it? I mean, you know, someone can punch you in the arm or inflict some sort of, you know, physical harm to you. And that's, you know, that's not fun. Reproaches hit a different level in many, many ways. They can be extremely trying to the faith of God's people. When you are absolutely misrepresented, when people twist and distort and misrepresent you and then carry it with a foghorn to the winds and tell others. It's painful to be mis misinterpreted, to take one thing that's been said or done or not done or whatever, and then for it to be repackaged, to be maligned, for people to 
accuse your motives when they were pure. And for people to do this in the world and at times among the people of God and to do so without scruple, thinking that somehow they're doing good by exposing what they consider bad, taking a righteous stand, right? The Lord said there'll be those who will throw you in prison thinking that they're serving God. How much more when it comes to things like bearing reproaches? In the year 1415, the remarkably godly John Huss was burned at the stake as a early proto-reformer. And when they went to burn him, they made a paper crown and they put three devils on the crown and they wrote on it, leader of heretics. They put it on his head. They put him on the stake. They gathered all the flammable material around him and lit it and him on fire before the watching world. Huss said then on that occasion that the Lord Jesus Christ had borne a crown of thorns for his sake. Why would he not wear a light crown for Christ's sake? Be it ever so ignominious. Reproaches, which may in some ways have stung as deep or deeper than the flames which lit him. And so there are these afflictions of, of reproaches that we have to bear. But then he, he, he mentions, he speaks more broadly. He says, uh, you're made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions. And here, this is, this is a more all-encompassing word or concept. You know, I had speaking elsewhere, uh, and during a QA, and uh, I was asked not too long ago a question, which was actually a perceptive question. I thought a good question. The question was, is the believer rewarded only for the sufferings that are explicitly for Christ in the sense of taking a stand for him, persecution, if you will, for Christ's sake? Or is the believer rewarded for all suffering, all afflictions, or the exercise of grace under all of, of those afflictions? And the answer is the latter. The answer is the latter, that the believer who exercises grace by God's help under all sufferings is, is rewarded for it. I had a, a um, retired minister's wife who had grown up in the Highlands tell me one time uh, that the Lord is more concerned with your sanctification than he, than he is your service. She was on to something. He's more concerned with your sanctification than he is with your service. It's not to say that he's not interested or concerned with our service. It is good to do God's work, but it is greater to do God's will. People think that suffering prevents service. That when we're sick and weak and other things, or we're being persecuted or people are imprisoned or whatever else, suffering prevents service. The answer is, could not be more to the contrary. No, suffering is one of the highest forms of service. Suffering itself is one of the highest forms of service. How do I know? Look at our Lord. Look at Job. Look at the Apostle Paul. Suffering is an arena of service. And we need to think it like we need to think biblically that way, not as a hiatus and a, a pause from service, but as a different venue in which we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord is glorified in the fires. He's not just glorified at the moment we are delivered from the fires. He is glorified in the midst of the fires. And so he says, you're made a gazing stock by reproaches and by afflictions, various sorts. But he says it's not only that. The second bucket isn't what happens to us directly. 
He says it's not just personal attacks, trials that are born, but he says also there was your share, your, your joining in the afflictions of others, your fellowship with them in, in suffering. You're going to have an example of this when we, if the Lord spares us when we get to chapter 11 with Moses. In verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Vera's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Our Lord told us of this. He gives us a, a view of, of the end and some of what will unfold before that august throne on the last day. And he's speaking both by way of reproof and by way of encouragement in Matthew 25. And you'll remember there how he says to his believing people, to their astonishment, amazement, you know, I was a hungered and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. A stranger, you took me in. Naked, clothed me. Sick and in prison, you visited me. And they're going to say, what? when did we ever do that? I have no recollection of that at all. And the Lord says, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And it is rewarded as unto Christ himself. Right? There is the share, the fellowship, joining with the Lord's people. This is not, I feel their pain type of mentality. Oh, isn't that terrible? I feel their pain as I go on my merry way. It is participation. They joined themselves with those who were being made a gazing stop. They, they participated. Right? Here we have, we have another element in the glue of God's people, and it is the virtue of a spiritual and biblical loyalty. Loyalty is not made much of these days. It still appears here and there. But there is a biblical spiritual loyalty. And I, when I say that, I'm distinguishing it, for example, from mere blind loyalty. Right? There is, there is loyalty to the tribe. Even the world's got that. The Lord's people can have it too. You know, loyalty to family, friends, and so on. Clannishness that says, well, I'm standing with them no matter what. No matter what the circumstances, I'm, I'm going to stand with them. But if they're not standing with Christ, then that's called treason. That sort of tribal clannishness, which is, which is a, yeah, a perversion, blind loyalty, is treason to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, I'm speaking here of biblical loyalty. It's a loyalty that is first and foremost attachment to Jesus Christ. And because of our unqualified allegiance, as I repeatedly say, unqualified allegiance to Jesus Christ, there is an inescapable loyalty to all that is his own, his own people, all that belongs to him, not only his truth and kingdom, his people. There's a loyalty in the house of God to one another that the world doesn't know anything of because it's a union that the world doesn't know anything of union with Christ and thereby united one to another as fellow members of the same body. There must be, should be, ought to be a biblical loyalty here. But what happens? You know, someone is paying the price tag for allegiance to Jesus Christ. And in our day and age, people begin to scatter. People begin to create a little bit of distance. Well, yeah, I know him and, you know, he's cool and you know, we like him and so on and so forth. But we're going to create some distance, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a low profile here because he's in the spotlight. She's in the spotlight for something, for, for standing for the Lord. And so I'm going to, you know, stay a few steps off, as it were. Paul says, no. He says, whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. You joined yourself to them. You were loyal. You said, in essence, I have your flank. Lock and load, to use a, a modern expression. 
We're going into battle. And brethren are there side by side the whole way. And Paul says, look, verse 34, you had compassion on me and my bonds. You know, look at, look at the price tag. You, you took the joyful spoiling of your own goods and, and so on and so forth. Here's Paul. And this is one of those texts among many in the book of Hebrews that I think shows us the Pauline authorship of, of Hebrews. That this, 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 this kind of language, self-referential, he's referring to himself as one who was in his bonds. Paul is written everywhere in the New Testament. He is the quintessential preeminent one in bonds. And he's constantly referring to himself in bonds and his relationship to others in bonds. And the other competitors as potential authors of Hebrews do not have that description. So it's just an aside. But here's Paul. And he's saying, I, 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 um, I've experienced it. I, I've been a recipient of it. Uh, I've seen it up close and personal. This isn't theoretical. This isn't just ideological. This is practical. This is real. And the fact is that some of you can say the same. Many of you can say the same. You've known the same experience. You can say with the Apostle Paul, I've been there. I've, I've, I've gone through that. I have seen the loyalty of God's people. That when, whether it be taking a stand and trying to follow the Lord and others standing with you and defending you and backing you and, and laboring with you, you've experienced that. Perhaps in other occasions, it's not so directly connected to things like persecution, if you will, but you've, you've gone through hard times, you've gone through deep waters and trials, and there were loyal people who were in the trenches with you who refused to forsake you, who refused to leave you, who were there in the thick and the thin and so on and so forth. Biblical loyalty, who stood with, supported, defended, participated, and so on. Paul says, I've seen it. I hope that not only, and I know it's true, many of you not only have experienced that, what Paul's describing, but you've also experienced what these Hebrews have. You've been the one who said, I'm deliberately, self-consciously choosing to, to, to enter into the difficulties with, with a brother or sister. Look at the sacrifice. He says, you know, this wasn't incidental. He said, in this case, he says, uh, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Right? They're plundered. Think about it. They're plundered after a great deal of hard work, stewardship, discipline, diligence, you know, amassing what they could under God for Christ's glory. It's their stuff. They've, they've labored hard for it. And they have families and they have needs and they've got vulnerabilities and they've got all sorts of other attending responsibilities. And he said, you took joyfully when they plundered you, when they sacked you, when they spoiled you. Joyfully, not begrudgingly. Not, oh, what a heavy loss this is. Oh, should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? Oh, I regret this, that, or the other thing. Joyfully, he says, you took it. You held those things loose because you were holding so tight something of infinitely greater value. He's saying you were liberated. You were, you were liberated because your heart was liberated. Your heart was liberated from your own self-interest and self-concerns and self-conceit and so on and so forth. You were loosened from those things in your heart. Right? We have it all through the book of Acts. Acts 5, verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council. Right? This is after they've been beaten. They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's the same everywhere. Naturally speaking, where do you find yourself? Naturally speaking, you love safety. Naturally speaking, you love security. Naturally speaking, you love stability and having things in order and so on and so forth. Preparation, whatever else that comes with it. That is natural. And the Bible calls us to prudence and so on. But that's not what this text is talking about. This text is talking about the pilgrim perspective. It's talking about those who live and think self-consciously and identify themselves as sojourners and aliens and utter foreigners in everything this world is and has. The pilgrim perspective, who are looking at the long haul, 
who aren't focused on their two feet in front of their toes, you know, the ground in front of their toes, who are looking at the long haul, who know that to be a biblical Christian is, will be, must be hazardous business. To be a biblical Christian is hazardous if you see it from earth. But it is heroic if you see it from heaven. What hazard is this? No hazard at all, as we'll see here in a moment. And so there's this endurance of great, a great fight of, of afflictions, enduring with glue in ways that are tying us to Christ himself, his cause, his glory, his kingdom, his church, his people, with the bonds of genuine love, self-denying love. But then thirdly, there is confidence in future reward. Thirdly, another aid to help us in persevering faith is confidence in future reward. Look at verse 34. Knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So the key, or if you will, the ground, or the reason for their joy, taking joyfully the spoiling of their goods, the key to it was faith to see the unseen. Here we are again. The faith to see the unseen. Think of how Paul says it elsewhere. One example is Romans 8, verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Or think of another, I think, savory example. From 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. True riches are those that are not accessible to plunder. True riches are those that are not accessible to people, humanity, to the devil. They're inaccessible to satanic plunder as well. Peter describes it in 1 Peter 1 verse 4 to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Notice that when you come back to Hebrews here in verse 34, he says that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. The reward in heaven is a possession. It's something that the believer possesses. So you think of having, you know, chairs in your living room and you've got clothes in your wardrobe and you've got other possessions. He's describing it as a possession, but the, the language here is it's substantial, right? It is a substantial possession. He, he describes it as enduring substance. Right? This is something with real weight. This is something with remarkable worth. Which if you put that in contrast to all of the possessions you have in this world, they are shadows in comparison. This heavenly substantial possession, which is weighty and worth what blows the mind, makes everything else in this world look like a shadow like a vapor, inconsequential. Notice the language. He says that it's a better substance, better than anything here, better than all the stuff that they had spoiled, all that was plundered. It's better than any of that. In fact, it's better than everything else because in heaven there is a better life, a better estate. There's a better heart and a better company and better work and better everything better absolutely everything. It's a, it's a better substance, he says. But he also says it's an enduring substance, right? Unlike the things of this world, it outlives time. You know, we saw in, in 1 Timothy 2, you can't, you, you were born into this world with nothing and you can't take anything out with you. It's all gone. The moment you draw your last breath, this possession you take with you 
into an endless eternity. It outlives time into eternity. And the rich reward that the Lord has for his people in heaven is disproportionate, infinitely disproportionate to all they lose in this world. It's that much greater, not worthy to be compared, an exceeding great eternal weight of glory, so on, all that biblical language. But we need to pause at this point because, you know, for many of you, you're thinking to yourself, yup, 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 we got it, you know, check. You know what, we've heard this a lot of times. We, we know this, we, we know this stuff. So we, we've got all this and that's all clear as crystal and you know, so on and so forth. I want you to notice the language of this text because I think it's, it's penetrating, it's searching. Because for many of you, you're thinking to yourself, I know it all. But the, the Lord tells us in this passage, knowing in yourselves. We're not passing over that. Knowing in yourselves. So the persuasion, the firm conviction, the sight, the experience, the foretaste of these things. When he says knowing in yourself, that is different than what many of you are led to conclude. It doesn't say knowing in the promises. It doesn't say knowing in the Bible. Right? You could say, I know this. I know that there is you know, that, that the Lord tells us of this, of this in heaven, a better and enduring substance, you know that it is in the Bible. You've got the facts. You've got the, the basic truth in your head. And yes, that's foundational. That's where we get it. It's the promise. It's the word of God that comes to us. But you must not stop there because you can acknowledge that this is what the Bible says. You can see it and have it in the Bible in front of you, but not have that truth in you. Not knowing it in yourselves. Right? That, that's a different thing. Having the truth in you and actually transforming you. You think, for example, easy illustration. What do you say of a husband or a wife? And they go to the filing cabinet and they pull out a marriage certificate and they say, you know, I know my, I know my wife, I know my husband loves me because here's, here's the marriage certificate. Right? Is that, is that the same thing? If, is, is, you know, your marriage certificate is the only proof that your spouse loves you, cherishes you, lives with you, gives to you, adores you? Not in a million years. It's truth that's not just on that piece of paper. It's truth that's in you. So the Lord's coming and he's saying, we need an experiential and experimental knowledge of these things. We need to not only be able to say, yes, 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 in heaven there's a better and enduring substance. That truth has got to come alive in your life, in your soul, so that you have new desires, new perspectives, new joys, new conflicts, new pursuits, new priorities, and everything else by the ministry of the Holy Spirit working that in you, being able to say, I'm heaven born and heaven bound. And that means something about everything else in my life. And it transforms everything else about how I see things and do things and say things. It enables you, among other things, to feel the lightness of the light afflictions. And that the substance in heaven is actually more real. Yes, more real and more enduring than the substance that you have to your name in this world. So that it's true in you. So that you are brought to the point where, yes, that is more real and enduring to me than everything else I put my hands on. That if I'm called to lose it all, I'll be sustained knowing, to use a phrase I like, all I've lost is chump change. All I've lost is chump change because I'm living for another world. I'm living for another world. First Timothy 6, you know, he's, <clears throat> he's speaking about these things, contentment with godliness. 
or godliness, or, uh, godliness with contentment is, is great gain. You know, people can collect fancy cars and property and all sorts of possessions and hang their hearts on them, as many do, and not be rich in good works. And not be rich, be poverty-stricken in their actual life. Because their wealth is found in something they can put their hands on. And there's very little wealth in what you can't put your hands on. The question is, what are you living for? What are you living for? Because the reward of God by grace is disproportionate to all the labor, all the works, all the sacrifices. I'll end with this. Believers need to understand believers themselves. You know, the title of the sermon is Trophies and Trial. Believers themselves are Christ's trophies. When you're thinking about the reward in heaven, all of that, you need to think first about the fact that the believer is, a, is Christ's trophy and jewels in his own crown. Christ can say, for this one and that one and the other whom I have redeemed by my grace, I am their all. I'm everything, full stop. I, am an all, I have been all in all to them. It's a trophy of grace for Christ. But then, secondly, the believer also receives a crown and reward from his hand. That comes second in our minds. We receive out of the abundant riches of his grace, opulent, disproportionate reward from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, which at the end of the day is more of himself. The greatest possible reward is for Christ to give, of, give us himself, to give us the sight of his glory, to give us nearness to him. And the higher the reward, the nearer to Christ, the more of his glory, the more of Christ himself will be the believers. And so the Lord is helping us in this call to persevering faith. He's helping us by telling us to look back at the faithfulness and goodness and mercies of God. Look back in the past. He's saying, you know, as you assess the, the, the enduring the afflictions that in the past, in the present, we're to do so under the hand of God in loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to do so with confidence in the future reward, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Well, may the Lord bless this to our hearing. Almighty God in heaven, the God of glory, the God who is glory, the God whom to know is glory, to have is glory, to receive from is glory. We pray not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but unto thy name be glory for thy mercy and truth's sake. Give, O Lord, that the Spirit of God by divine power working grace in the souls who hear, would be brought out of this perishing world into a saving knowledge of Christ and in him the hope of heaven. Give us, O Lord, that we indeed who have grace might persevere in it and there might be an increase of faith and that this too would redound for eternity to the glory of thy Son in whose name we pray.